Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing in our series. Uh, this is a pretty awesome letter, isn't it? 1 Peter, so much practical uh, teaching here. And this one pertains to marriage, and if you're thinking, well, I'm not married, I'm going to take a nap, please don't do that. Although if you need a nap, just don't snore, put your mask on or something. But I think you're, you're going to want to hear this for future reference and also just to help out uh, married friends and family there. And by the way, there's some relationship principles here that really go across the board beyond even marriage. So there's plenty here for everybody. It is the word of God after all, right? Who wrote it? God did. Let's speak to him, shall we? Father, we thank you for this privilege we have to come here, like-minded brothers and sisters, and hear you speak through your word. And what a freedom we have in this nation and what a privilege. We want to cherish this while we have it. And Father, I pray that you would give myself and each of us a teachable spirit so that you can have free reign in our hearts and minds. Make us more like Jesus. That might mean growing pains and stretching, but bring it on, Lord. We need it. So please be glorified through this worship experience, but then in the days ahead as we live out these things by your spirit and by your grace, we pray all these in the magnificent name of Jesus. And my brothers and sisters said, amen. amen. Praise the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3. A number of years ago, I officiated at a wedding in uh, Elgin, Illinois. If you're from Chicagoland, you'll know that it's a far west suburb. And there's kind of a conglomeration of county uh, boundaries there, right? And so I'm in the habit, typically, when I do weddings, of not signing the marriage license until the knot is actually tied. I've seen, and you've probably seen movies where somebody gets cold feet and walks out or something happens, you know, and I don't want to sign it in advance. I'd rather wait. Well, uh, after this particular ceremony, I decided, okay, I'm going to sign that license, and I read the fine print, and here's how it reads. This marriage license is, effectively, uh, is effective only in Kane County, K-A-N-E, right? And then it says... The wedding ceremony must not be performed in any other county. So I read that, but I panicked because I didn't really check what county I was in. And I checked with some people and they said, no, no, we're in Kane County. So I signed it. Whew. Glad. Otherwise, we'd have to do a do-over somewhere else, right? Well, then a couple days later, believe it or not, I came across this news item. And here's what it says. This was just days later. Mary Campbell of Elgin, Illinois, had to say, I do, three times at three different wedding ceremonies before she finally became Mrs. Randy Peterson. Well, what happened? The couple took out their marriage license in Kane County, but the church was in DuPage County. Therefore, the ceremony did not count because it violated Kane County's laws you see, a, a county is not pleased when people do not submit to their laws. But notice what happens. So they packed up the wedding party and moved on to the Lord's Park. Now, it's going to go well if you're at the Lord's Park. Everything goes well at the Lord's Park, right? And this is on the eastern edge of Elgin. And there they were married a second time in a tree-shaded park. Everything good, right? Well, hang on a second. A sharp-eyed copy editor at the Elgin Courier News was reading a report on the wedding when he noticed another problem. 
You see, the park actually was in Cook County, just 200 feet from Kane County. Close, but no cigar, as they say. And so, in this case, it was another situation where the ceremony in Lord's Park violated the lordship of Kane County's laws. And so, they were not pleased. They're not going to honor it, right? So, finally, a third ceremony took place in the newsroom, not too romantic, but the newsroom of the Courier News. And they checked and made sure that this newsroom was actually a good mile inside of Kane County. So they went through with the ceremony, and because both spouses submitted to Kane County's laws, the county was pleased to honor that marriage license, and Kane County is pleased when both couples submit to the marriage laws instituted by Kane County. Now you know your Bible, and you know that God instituted marriage. God is the inventor of marriage. He thought it up. Only God can think of something so awesome. And his son, Jesus, blessed marriage by his presence at a wedding in Cana. You know that from John chapter 2, right? So if this is God's invention and he designed it, he's the engineer, if you will, and he knows how it works to its optimum, I think it would be wise to ask a very simple question, and that is, when is God pleased with a marriage. And what we're going to discover in our text today is that God is pleased when both spouses, yes, both, both spouses submit to Christ's lordship. God is pleased when both spouses submit to Christ's lordship. And I would argue they're at their happiest when they're doing such. It's a great place to be. Now, as I mentioned, uh, many of you are single, and you may be wondering, um, why should I listen to this sermon on marriage? Honestly, my plan is to remain single. All right, I hope in your plans also is to be a blessing to your married friends and family members, and if that's the case, learning some of these principles will help you to serve them better. And as I say, there's some transferable principles for any relationship here, really. Probably most of the singles will likely Marry someone down the road. Only God knows that at this point, right? I'd like you to view this text as this actual text. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. But I'd like you to look at it as counseling for marriage by the creator of marriage for the coming of marriage down the road, right? So this is good prep. Uh, and I mentioned in the first service, uh, years ago I had a... We actually, in our preaching class, went through 1 Peter, and I assigned this text to a young guy, probably in his lower 20s. He fought it. He didn't really see the relevance of preaching it because he was single, wasn't really sure he was going to get married. He wasn't even, it wasn't on the radar at that point. So he wrestled with this, and finally he submitted to the Lord, if you will, and said, you know, I'm just going to give it my best and preach it. And I saw him probably about eight years or so later. He came up to me. He said, hey, Doc, thanks for giving me that text. That was great prep for my marriage. It forced me to wrestle through some of the issues before I actually got into marriage. So that ended up being a good thing. So please don't tune me out if you're single, okay? And obviously for those of us who are married, the relevance here is right before us. And the question is, how are we using our marriages to please God? The reason I'm asking that question, is you've seen this, right? Sadly, too many couples enter a marriage assuming their spouse is going to meet all of their needs. That's not only selfish, that's naive. It just doesn't work that way. You're marrying an imperfect person. Hello, 
there's gonna be some sparks flying at some point, just factor in some time, right? And that's a setup for disappointment. And so there was a woman who went for counseling and the counselor asked her, well, what is the problem? How, how can I help? And she said, well, I was looking for an ideal, but I ended up marrying an ordeal and now I want a new deal. She wanted to change things. That's not the way to approach marriage. It is for life, according to its designer. And so she wasn't asking the question, how can I use my marriage to glorify God? And that's a question, a healthy question we need to ask. Since God gave us this gift of marriage, how can we give it back to him to be a blessing to him and to other people, our spouses, obviously, family members and friends? When is God pleased with a marriage? Well, God is pleased when both spouses, both spouses submit to Christ's lordship. All right, if that's true, and it is, you'll see it in the text. I didn't make it up. It's there. In what ways can both spouses demonstrate their submission to Christ's lordship? We're going to look at two ways. Short message, only two points. No, not necessarily. So hang in there with me. Here's the first one, right? Here's the first way to demonstrate submission to Christ's lordship, and it is a wife must submit to and obey her husband. A wife must submit to and obey her husband. Now, some of you wives are probably feeling some butterflies in your stomach right now. I just want to ask you to trust me, peace, be still. It's going to be okay. We're gonna walk through the text and see what's going on here. This text has been abused through the years. And of course, we have the culture which has shifted so far away from the Bible. There's so much misunderstanding. And I'm gonna walk through a number of minefields. Pray for me that none of them blow up in my face or on my feet, all right? Because there's some things I have to unravel here that have been misunderstood through the years. So pray for me, all right? So looking at chapter three and verse one, notice Peter says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they notice, observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, you know the context. Pastor Josh has walked through these texts before. So back to chapter two, you don't have to turn there, but in 13 through 17, there we see submission to civil society, and then chapter two, verses 18 through 25, submission in the place of employment, and now three, one through seven, we're looking at submission in the family. So notice this common theme begins with an S, submission, right? That word, submission, is a dirty word in our culture today. In God's word, it's a holy, pure an awesome principle. So it's gonna be a matter of faith. Am I gonna believe what the culture told me or am I gonna believe what my Lord told me? You're gonna to have to decide on that. It really is a sweet thing. We live in a culture where we, where we wanna be assertive and demand our rights at all times. What about me, what about me? Me, 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 me. Well, sorry for that. That's icing between the notes, just thought you should know. You probably know already. But the point is, 
Submission is sweet, and I hope you'll pick that up among other things as we walk through this text here. It's really a beautiful thing. For your notes, we're not going to look there, but uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 30, there you'll see that Peter had a mother-in-law, which implies that Peter was, begins with an M, he was married, right? Can't have a mother-in-law if you're not married. That'd be kind of weird. So he is speaking then from personal experience. Of course, he gets this message from God. But he knows what he's talking about because he has a wife, right? Now, as I said, there's a bunch of minefields, about five of them, and here's the first one. Just pray that nothing explodes here, otherwise the message is gonna be really short. And that is the apparent, notice the word, apparent disproportionate focus. If you're looking at the whole passage, you're probably saying, hey, why does Peter devote six verses to the wife and only one to the husband. What gives, Peter? Is this some chauvinism here? Are you beating up on women? Are you beating up on wives, Peter? No, 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 and no. By the way, when we go through these minefields, I'm always gonna say no, just to give you a heads up. That's how it's gonna go down. So what's going on then? Why all this attention to the wives and only one verse for the husbands? Well, the truth is, in the first century, wives had a more challenging situation than did their husbands for a lot of reasons. Let me read a quote from one scholar. He says, in that society, women were expected to follow the religion of their husbands. Now, they might have their own cult on the side, but the family religion was that of the husband. So the husband reserved the right to say, hey, get rid of that God and worship my God. It didn't work the other way, right? So a woman in this situation, he's addressing, by the way, a, a Christian wife who is married to an unbelieving husband. We're going to find out through the language later that he's actually hostile to the gospel. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, he doesn't say, but odds are she got saved after they were married. She's now a believer, and she is yoked to a man who doesn't buy the gospel. In fact, is resistant. So that's who he's addressing. That's the context here. So since she has such a tough situation, naturally, he's got to spend more time with this complex situation. And so that's why there's six verses. He's not beating up on anybody, okay? So that's one minefield. Nothing exploded. I think, I think we're good. We'll, we'll proceed then. Good. Hang in there with me, all right? So notice that Peter does not tell her to leave this man because he's an unbeliever. He doesn't tell her to give up her Christianity for his sake, as the culture would probably advocate, but rather he affirms her faith in Christ, but he does not want her to use her Christian faith as some kind of a wedge, uh, whatever it might be, some kind of a superiority mindset to disobey her husband and be disrespectful, right? In other words, even though, and I think about this, and you are probably married to a Christian husband, maybe some are not, but the logic is if he's asking a Christian to submit to an unbelieving husband, you've actually got it a little easier because this is a tougher situation, right? But Peter's trying to encourage her, and he's referring to this spiritually mixed marriage, but I want you to know, because you can say, well, then that's not my situation because my husband is a believer, but rather these principles apply across the board. You may have a husband, if I could be so bold, who is a Christian, but who's a little bit lukewarm in his faith right now, a little bit lackluster, the fire's not there anymore. These principles will help by the grace of God and the spirit of God to fire him up once again, hopefully. That's the goal, right? 
In this case, this wife is trying to get her husband saved. And so Peter is giving her a way to do that. We'll talk about it in a moment. But notice the phrase in verse 1, in the same way. That keys back to 2.13 and 2.18 where it says, be submissive. And the idea here is to function well, every institution needs a head. You know that, right? And every family needs a final authority. In a crisis situation, if the husband and wife are at odds, the kids don't know what to do, the house is on fire, the ceiling is about to collapse, jump out this window, no, jump out that, no, don't listen to him, jump out, no, jump out, the kids are confused, bam, everybody dies, right? If there's a final authority, they'll make their way out, hopefully. Crazy scenario, but the principle stands. Somebody has to be the final authority. And in this case, God assigned final authority to the husband. Now, this raises a question, minefield number two. Do I have to submit to everything my husband does and says unquestioningly? See, this is where the butterflies come from. Answer begins with an N and ends with an O. No, no. Yes, in general, submit to him, but when it comes to things that violate the word of God, for example, if there's sinful behavior involved, the wife must not submit to the husband in that case. If he issues some command to do something that is sinful, you do not submit to that. Why? Because remember we talked about the lordship of Christ? You are primarily under the lordship of Jesus Christ and you would lovingly look your husband in the eye and say, honey, you know I love you. But I cannot do that because the person who created you and gave you life and actually brought you to me and we entered into a marriage bond in his presence, that one, says I shouldn't do this. So you're putting me in a crisis. I either need to listen to your maker or listen to you. And as much as I respect you, I think your maker knows best. And I'm going to submit to Jesus. I'm sorry, but this is what I have to do. So it's going to take a little bit of courage. It's going to take a lot of faith, right? It's a tough situation, especially with an unbeliever. But that dynamic can even happen, believe it or not, in, in a Christian marriage. And so, wives, you do not have to submit to everything your husband says, right? If it's within the bounds of Scripture, yes. But if it's not, don't worry about it. You shouldn't. And so, notice he says, to your own husbands. You see it there? Be submissive to your own husbands. So this is not a general submission to all men, but an exclusive submission to your one husband. Why? He says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, if you have the NIV, it says, do not believe the word. This is an unbelieving husband who actually is antagonistic toward the gospel. It's a tough situation, right? Oh, by the way, in the first century, more often than not, if it was an unequally yoked situation, it was the wife who was the Christian and the husband was the unbeliever. That's just generally how it panned out in the first century. But in this case now, she has a goal, a noble goal, an awesome goal, and that is, you see it there, that they, the husband, may be one, literally, that they may be gained, this is a missionary term, means to be one over for Jesus, and what Peter is doing is offering a divine strategy for winning her husband to Christ. Now, there's no guarantees, right? But this is the best way or method 
to reach him for Christ. And so this also works, by the way, if you're trying to revive a, for lack of a better word, a backslidden husband who needs a little fire, right? But notice how. He says, without a word. Let me tell you right away that in this case, the husband probably already knows she's a Christian. He's prob she's probably heard the gospel a number of times from her. But what he's trying to avoid is the wife who is, you know, putting stick'em notes on his windshield with Bible verses, who's got him on when he shaves in the mirror. There's Bible verses every which way. She's got Christian radio on all the time, including in his car when he turns it on. He's having his uh, alphabet cereal, and it has John 3.16 spelled out right on top of the milk, and then alphabet soup for lunch, and it says repent with three exclamation points, and on and on it goes. Uh, I just want to say human nature, I'm speaking as a man now, if you keep doing that, he's going to put a wall up, he's going to resist, and there's going to be diminishing returns. He might retaliate, and you might find on your dresser, on your mirror, N-N-N, N-N-N. N, N, N. Honey, what's this N, N, N stuff? Nagging not necessary. It's not going to work. If you want to win me, don't win me through my ears. Win me through my eyes. And that's just what Peter says. By the behavior, which can be seen, by the behavior of their wives. Now, you've heard of the great Augustine from centuries ago. His wife, Monica, or I should say his mom, Monica, was a believer. In fact, she prayed for him, and God used that to lead him to Christ. His dad was not a believer. He was a pagan. And so she prayed for her husband, just as she did for her son, continually. And he's speaking to the Lord, and he's describing how God used his mom, Monica, to win her unbelieving husband to faith. Listen to what he says here. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you, how? By her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Uh, wives, grace-empowered living speaks for itself. It's powerful. Now, it needs to be supplemented with the gospel. My assumption is he heard the gospel. He read it in his alphabet serial, right? He's got the content. He just needs to see, is this stuff for real or not? And now he's seeing that in her life. She has great credibility as they observe what? Here it is. Your chaste, literally, pure, your pure conduct, your Christian virtue, your purity and lifestyle, and respectful, and that's what the man really wants, respect, respectful behavior. If you have the NIV, it says reverence. That is reverence for God. Same word you'll see in 117 where it says, conduct yourselves in fear. 217, fear God. He's not saying worship your husband, but he's saying fear God and respect your husband. And the Lord helps you to do such. Proverbs 31.30, charm, well, it's deceitful. Beauty, what about it? Our culture highly values beauty. It's vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Peter tells us in verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external braiding, 
braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Braiding the hair, literally plating of hairs. This is the elaborate process of inweaving the hair, as one scholar says. In Peter's day, the hairstyles of fashionable Roman ladies consumed so much time and attention and were highly artificial and ostentatious. Whatever that word means, it doesn't sound like a good word. I don't know. I'll look it up later. But nevertheless, they're investing too much time worried about their looks, right? There's another minefield coming. Hang in there. Wearing gold jewelry, he says. Now, in Peter's day, women wore gold hairnets, gold earrings, gold necklaces, gold armbands, gold bracelets, multiple gold rings, and gold ankle bracelets. And then he says, putting on dresses, referring to the frequent changing of dresses in order to draw undue attention to self. If you have the NIV, it says fine cloths. That's not really in the Greek there. By the way, he's not prohibiting the wearing of dresses, obviously. And if he's not prohibiting that, then he's not prohibiting the rest. Now comes the minefield, and that is, wait a minute, is the Bible saying I can't wear makeup, I can't fix my hair, I can't wear, no, 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 and again, no. In fact, now this may not be in your translation, I don't know, but in mine, I have the word there, merely, External. Now, you need to know that word merely is not in the Greek text. The translators added that for good reason, and that is they want to point out that adornment is not prohibited. So he's not saying don't wear jewelry and all that. Um, J. Vernon McGee used to say, if the barn needs painting, by all means paint it. So he's not against that. But what he's saying is don't let that be your primary focus. In other words, beauty is only skin deep. Now, ladies, have you ever seen a woman from a distance and you say, wow, she is really beautiful. I wish I had her, whatever, her hair, her shape, whatever. And then you get closer to her and you met her for the first time and you start talking to her and you find out that this beautiful woman is very arrogant and pushy and condescending and she has such a foul mouth that three sailors standing here are blushing. They never heard such bad words. And all of a sudden, she doesn't look as pretty anymore, does she? You see, there's something about the joy, the radiant joy in the face of a child of God, the beam in their eyes. It's so attractive. And cosmetics won't do that. I mean, you can have the external beauty, yeah, but... If you're messed up on the inside, that's going to leak out somehow and kind of tarnish the image, right? So he's saying, focus on Christ-like character. The pristine beauty of Christ-like character is far more attractive than the fleeting physical beauty of external vanity. Am I investing more time looking at the Bible or looking at the mirror? It's a priority issue, really. Either or, they're both good. But where is the emphasis? That's the issue. And if your husband is an unbeliever, do you want him to focus on you or on Yeshua? Obviously both, but primarily on Yeshua, Jesus, right? Because Jesus makes all marriages better. Marriages without him are at a disadvantage. 
I'm not ashamed to tell you that my wife is in love with a Jewish carpenter, and I don't mind, because it makes her a better wife, and by the way, he makes me a better husband. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? Have you invited him into your marriage? You should, because he invented the whole thing anyway, and he's the glue that holds a marriage together. You've seen the triangle, I'm sure. Here's the husband, here's the wife, and then when you go up the triangle, Jesus is on the top. What's happening to the couple? They're getting closer because of Christ. They draw away from Christ. They're getting further from each other as well. There's a direct relationship between our relationship with Jesus. That's why we're talking about submitting to Jesus and submitting to each other and enjoying each other, right? It goes together. This is a relational principle that works many different ways. He says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, that is the inner character, the regenerated nature, the real you expressing itself, he says, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentleness, obviously, is evidence of the fruit of the spirit working in your life. A quiet spirit refers to a tranquil disposition, which can actually be the thermostat in a turbulent home. It's a rare commodity today, by the way, to see genuine tranquility that comes from God. Which is, and this should matter to all of us, which is precious in the sight of God. Godly character is the most precious jewel you can adorn yourself with. Outer physical beauty draws attention to self, but inner spiritual beauty draws attention to the Savior. So, why major on what we're ultimately going to lose instead of majoring on what we ultimately get to keep, right? Verse 5, he says, For in this way, that is, with a gentle and quiet spirit, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. He's talking about the holy women of the Old Testament. They expected God to fulfill his promises. They had a strong faith in God. They were anchored in him. And today, for the modern wife who is a Christian, our hope, our anchor is Jesus Christ. He says, they used to adorn themselves beyond dresses and jewelry. Holy women adorned themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. And he adds, notice, being submissive to their own husbands. Same phrase as in verse one. These are like bookends here. His point, a wife must submit to and obey her husband. Now, he moves from Old Testament women to one Old Testament woman in particular, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. You see it there? Verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, the language suggests that Sarah was in the habit of calling Abraham Lord. For your notes, Genesis 18, 12. I'm feeling another minefield coming on. Pray for me. Hope this one doesn't go off. And Sarah laughed to herself. Notice this is Sarah's own thoughts. She's not speaking to anybody. We're getting a window into Sarah's inner attitude toward her husband. They've been married a long time, so much so they can't have children. It's been a sweet marriage, some bumps along the way, as all marriages have, but they love each other, obviously. And she's laughing to herself, and she says, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? Now, she didn't call Abraham Lord out of obligation, out of pressure 
for the benefit of onlookers to impress other people, she had an inner attitude of respect toward her husband. Minefield number four. You mean to tell me I got to call my husband Lord? Answer. Begins with an N. Ends with an O. Quiet group. Uh, here, here it is, my friends. That was a cultural thing. The bottom line with her calling him Lord, that's what they did at that time. And the idea is that was a sign of respect for her husband. So wives, you don't have to call your husband Lord. In fact, if you were to ask him, honey, I'm gonna give you two options. A, do you want me to call you Lord all the time? Or B, do you want me to give you respect all the time? He's gonna go with B. Yes, men, amen? Am I the only guy here? Okay. Don't call me Lord, please. So, uh, by the way, my better three quarters right here, my best friend on the planet, I love her like I can't tell you. She respects me, I love her. Is our marriage perfect? No way, we're under construction. We got things to work on. But doesn't it get sweeter every year, honey? Yeah. We're gonna talk a little bit later about studying your wives, and I've been studying her for a long time, and it's a joy, it's a total joy. But what's happening here is basically she's showing respect to her husband. So whatever that means today in our culture, and the only thing that matters is your husband thinks so, whatever that is, I, I don't know. I mean, you give him a back rub, he feels respected, do it. Whatever, it. whatever that means, I don't know. But that's the idea. You don't have to call him Lord. All right, did I get away from that minefield? Whew. All right, keep praying. So then he says, and you have become her children, that is through faith in Christ at conversion, then he says, if you do what is right. He's not talking about works there. What he's talking about is demonstration. In other words, your behavior toward your husband will demonstrate whether or not you are a daughter of Sarah who is the mother of all believers. That's what he's saying. And then here's where the courage comes in, wives. It says, without being frightened by any fear. In this context, in Peter's day, again, a pagan husband might pressure his wife to conform to his religion. Get rid of your Jesus and follow my whatever his idol might be, right? But the believing wife needed to hope in God and take a stand for what is right. Now, we've seen she has gentleness, meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It does involve faith and courage, by the way. And so she needs to take a stand. And so when you're cultivating Christ-like character and are submitted to Christ's lordship, wives, submitting to your husband can be a source of great, great, great blessing. He says so. And so, um, if you want it for your notes, somebody asked me about this at the earlier service. There's a book called Love and Respect, if you're interested. It's a great book. The author is Dr. Emerson Eggeriches, E-G-G-E-R-I-C-H-S. You can see me afterwards, I'll give you the title again, but he gives some practical counsel to wives with regard to their husbands, and here's what he says. Appreciate his desire to work and achieve. Appreciate his desire to protect and provide. Appreciate his desire to serve and to lead. Appreciate his desire to analyze and to counsel. Appreciate his desire for shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder friendship. Appreciate his desire for sexual intimacy 
And then Paul says, for your notes, wives, in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 33, says this, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And this appreciate, 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 that's really saying respect, right? Respecting your husband and submitting to his leadership will encourage him in his relationship with Christ. You want that, right? And will encourage him in his relationship with you. You want that also. This is a win-win here. God's formula is the best one. I think he knows, because he invented this whole thing called marriage. He knows how it works best. And so, as we ask the question then, when is God pleased with a marriage? We see that God is pleased when both spouses are fully submitted to Christ's lordship. Now, how do we manifest that we are Submitted to Christ's lordship, we've seen the first way, and that is a wife must submit to and obey her husband. Now, men, fasten your seatbelts. It's your turn now. It's only one verse, but it's a powerful verse. Here it is. Second way, a husband must care for and honor his wife. A husband must care for and honor his wife. When you see this working, it's the most beautiful thing on planet Earth when it's working well. So notice what he says, verse seven, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be Hindered. Now he says, you husbands in the same way. In what way? Again, chapter 2, verse 13. Submit to, remember? And then also in verse 18, submit to. He keeps telling you who to submit to. And then in 3 1, submit to. And now here, in the same way, he doesn't say submit to, but it's implied there's submission involved here. One scholar puts it like this. Husbands must submit to the Lord and demonstrate this submission by meeting their wives' needs. It's all about servanthood. And that's a manifestation then of Christ within you, the hope of glory, Spirit of God working through you, husbands. By the way, uh, side note, Peter is addressing, in this case now, believing husbands. Before he was speaking to a believing wife, married to an unbelieving husband. In this case now, it's a believing husband, right? Verse seven, live with your wives in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge. In other words, husbands, educate yourself. Study your wife, be a student of her so that you may gain insight into her nature. And as I say, I, I've been a uh, student of Catholicology since at least 1985. I'm still waiting to get a grade. I don't know if I'm doing good or bad, A, B, C. Uh, I'm hoping it's a pass-fail in my case. But nevertheless, study your wife. It's a fascinating study, and it really is. Study your wife. I'm not saying study all wives, study all women. Study the wife that God gave you. It's very important. And there's blessing in it. In other words, how can you care for your wife if you're oblivious to her needs, her fears, her hopes, her desires, her dreams. Husbands, be attentive and be kind. It's biblical and it's wise 
and there's blessing in it. A husband must care for and honor his wife. He says, as with a weaker vessel. Oh boy, another minefield. Are you praying? You mean to tell me that Peter is saying that wives are weaker intellectually, morally, spiritually? The answer? Again, it begins with an N. That's it. Amen. Amen. That's not what he's saying. This has to do with the physical, and he's saying, generally speaking, men are stronger than women. Now, there are exceptions. And if you would have met Big Belinda, I knew her in the second grade. They called her Big Belinda. And I saw her take down two boys during recess in the parking lot. Uh, and, bo- and I was afraid of her, and so were my buddies. You wouldn't mess with Belinda, all right? So there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, men are stronger than women. Hello, nothing new here, right? That's what he's saying. So did I get away with that minefield? All right. So Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. That's a tall assignment, men. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. So he's saying, don't overpower your wife, intimidate her with your strength, and you should be willing to lay down your life without even thinking about it if danger comes because she's the most precious thing God ever gave you next to your salvation, right? Any amens out there anywhere? Hello. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Husband, care for your wife. Husband, honor your wife and be grateful that God gave her to you. Verse seven, beautiful here. He says, and grant her honor, husband, use your God-given authority to bestow honor upon your wife, and that'll be seen by how you treat her. Remember, she is of great worth and great dignity. She's a co-heir with you. She's made in the image of God, just like you, and you need to honor her. A husband must care for and honor his wife. How? He says, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now, teaching about justification by faith, if you want it, it's Galatians chapter 3, 28-29. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female. What's he talking about? He's saying men and women are equal before Christ, they both are at the foot of the cross, and they both have equal access to salvation. Christian spouses both enjoy equal standing before God. Husbands and wives are equal in dignity and worth. By contrast, the world says, wait a minute, worth is based upon role. Worth is based upon function. Worth is based upon credentials and prestige and blah, 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 blah. That's not biblical. God gave them different roles, but he values husbands and wives, hear it now, equally. Do I need to say that again? That's what the Bible teaches. So that, speaking to the husbands now, men, you're gonna get a shiver in your spine. So that your prayers may not be hindered, that is, by God. Greek word there is literally to cut in, to interrupt. All right, I'm an old dude, obviously. Anybody remember what a telephone booth is? Anybody ever heard of a telephone booth? Anybody ever watch Superman? Hello. Well, back in the day when I was a young kid, it was 10 cents. You, you go in this booth. It's outside. It's a glass booth. You go in there, put 10 cents, and you get so many minutes, I forget, and you can talk to your friend on the phone, and it's about to expire on the time. You'll hear an operator say something like, and usually it's a recording. It'll be something like, 
uh, in later days it was 25 cents. 25 cents, please, for the next five minutes. And then you'd put your 20, you have to scramble for your change. Hopefully you got some, otherwise that's it, you're cut off. Throw your change in there and then you could talk for so many more minutes. Well, God cuts in and says, care for and honor your wife, please, for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Otherwise, he's not gonna pick up the phone and he will not hear your prayers. Gentlemen, if you're praying and your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and hitting you in the head, you might wanna examine your relationship with your wife. Because if your relationship with your wife is strained, your relationship with God might also be strained. I would at least start there, it could be some other cause. But that's a great place to start, see what's going on there. A husband must care for and honor his wife. Now back to that book, Love and Respect. He gives some counsel to husbands toward their, life, to their wives, and he says this. He says, men, husbands, she wants you to be close. He says, she wants you to open up to her. He advises, don't try to fix her, just listen. You say, oh, that's a tough one for, hey, you got the spirit living in you, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, hello. Yield to the spirit of God and just listen. I know we like to fix stuff, right, guys? But just listen. She wants you to say, and I'll get ready for this one, fasten your seatbelts, gentlemen. Two words. She wants you to say, I'm sorry. She needs to know you're committed. She wants you to honor and cherish her. Now that's biblical, guys. I want you to write down Ephesians chapter 5, 28 and 29. Paul says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Listen to this. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Now, when is God pleased with a marriage? God is pleased when both spouses submit to Christ's lordship. That's where the joy flows from, right there. In the meaning of marriage, Kathy Keller, wife of Tim Keller, you may have heard of him, pretty famous pastor, she gives an example of submission in a very tough life choice. Put yourself in this situation and think about it. She says, in the late 1980s, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. Tim was excited about the idea. But I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine to five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. Dilemma, right? what to do. 
It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. So I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, well, if you don't want to go, we won't go. However, I replied, oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make a choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Well, Tim made the decision to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The whole family, our sons included, consider it one of the most truly manly things Tim ever did. Because he was quite scared, but he felt a call from God. I want you to listen to the pronouns here because marriage in its essence is a team effort. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with, but it is clear that God worked in us and through us, and when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts, you see, that's where the joy begins. Notice it begins in submission, in a submissive attitude, in a selfless attitude. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Did Jesus submit? Was Jesus selfless? Do we want to be like Jesus in our marriages as well as other places? And so the question is, when is God pleased with a marriage? Which, by the way, he invented. It's his institution. God is pleased when both spouses submit to Christ's lordship. Amen? Let's pray.